0: John chapter 13. Take your Bibles out if you don't mind, either in book or app form, and find John 13. We're looking at the first 17 verses, and as you find that particular text, let me pray, and then we'll get going, all right? All right. Jesus, we love you. We desperately need you and want more of you, and so I pray that through the word that you have given us by the breathed out production of the Holy Spirit, we come with anticipation and expectation of what you have for us today. Help us to see things clearly. Help us to see things that only the Spirit, you, O Holy Spirit, would and can bring. So I, I pray that we would see things in either fresh ways or new ways. Help me as a preacher and teacher. I'm a man most fallible. I am a part of this audience as we come on bended knee toward your word. And so I pray that I would hear as much, if not more, than anyone else. I desperately need you and want you. Help all of us as listeners. I pray that you would use me in spite of me for your glory, our joy, our strength, and the continuation of our faith as we grow from one degree to the next in likeness. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are starting a new series today, launching an Easter series that we are calling A Violent Hope, The the Final Days of Jesus. We're calling it A Violent Hope because there are no days, especially over such a short period of time, that bring together such contrasting realities, it's a violent hope. Just consider some of the things that the final days of Jesus bring together. Things like brutality with promise, things like revulsion with splendor, and again, violence with hope. There are no days that can be likened to the final days of Jesus. They are the final days of the most important person who has ever lived. They are days that bring a, de- a desire, bring together a desire to look away all the while wanting to gaze at. It's this this strange, interesting, wondrous, juxtaposed gaze at these last days of Jesus. Now, some may go, some of you may go, most important person who ever lived, really, Jesus, it's actually not even debatable, really. Um, There has been no more significant person who has ever walked planet Earth, and I caution you, Against equating the influence Jesus has had over the past millennia by measuring it against the influence he has had on your life personally. A lack of recognition personally does not negate the reality of something cosmically. Quoting from the book Vintage Jesus, the author writes Jesus is the most famous person in all of human history. More songs have been sung to him, artwork created of him, and books written about him than anyone who has ever lived. In fact, Jesus looms so large over human history that we actually measure time by him. Our calendar is divided into the years before and after his birth, noted as B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, meaning in the year of our Lord. And when I refer to Jesus as a person, I want to make sure you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not negating his divinity. Jesus, we believe, is God. Jesus declared as much. We'll actually get a taste of that a little bit later in our message and time together, in this message and our time together. So I'm not negating his divinity when I say that. What I mean when I refer to Jesus as a person is that he was 100% man and 100% God all at the same time, but even more than that, he was personal. Jesus is not a force or a power or an esoteric it. He is a person who wants to be known and wants to know. He's the most significant, important person who has ever lived, and we are going to gaze at some of the last days of his life, and we're going to note what takes place in them. The final days of Jesus that we will focus on in this series refer to the seven days that take place between what we now call Palm Sunday and now call Easter Sunday. We're going to look at those seven days. I don't know what your last week was like, but just consider the last week of Jesus' life and ministry. On that first Sunday, he entered Jerusalem to much fanfare. He predicted his death, and he visited the temple. On Monday, he cursed the fig tree, and he cleansed the temple. On Tuesday, he taught the lesson from the fig tree. He engaged in controversies in the temple, and he predicted the future. On Wednesday, he continued his daily teaching in the temple It's on this day as well that the Sanhedrin Sanhedrin plotted to kill Jesus. On Thursday, an upper room is secured. He ate the Passover meal. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He washed his disciples' feet. He predicted Peter's denial, sent out Judas, and he proceeded to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray in anguish while his disciples succumbed to sleep. On early Friday, he is betrayed by Judas, he is arrested, he has a hearing before the high priest, he is denied, denied by Peter three times, he meets with Pilate twice, in fact, as well as Herod, he is beaten, he is scourged. he is condemned to crucifixion, and he breathes his last. He is then buried in a new tomb. On Saturday, at the bequest of the chief priests and Pharisees, guards are placed at the entrance of the tomb. And then finally on Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, some women discover the tomb to be empty. Mary returns and encounters Jesus. Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus, and that evening he appears to the 11 minus Thomas in the house, in a house in Jerusalem. What a week! What a week! And when I say this is the final days or these are the final days of Jesus, I also don't mean to suggest that that's it for him. We know that he rose and he appeared for 40 days and he continues to work by role of and by work of and by the sending of his spirit as the spirit works in our lives and continues to work. His days have not stopped. He is continuing to work. But his finished work, that necessary finished work for our salvation is done. It's finished. It's final. It's final. So when I talk about the final days of Jesus, that's what I'm referring to. So with all of that in mind, if you haven't yet, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13, and as you find or look in this passage, I need to set the stage, because we're now in Thursday. We're now in Thursday. The the events that we're going to look at in this series, the five events, two of them will take place in the upper room. We're going to look at one today, the foot washing of Jesus. We're also going to look next week at the new commandment that Jesus gives in the upper room, and then we're going to double back, and we're going to look at Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, which is two Sundays from today, and then obviously on Good Friday, we'll look at the crucifixion, and then on Easter and resurrection of Jesus on that Sunday will look at his resurrection. But I need to set the stage because we're now in the midst of this final week. It's Thursday. And what's taking place in the context of John chapter 13 is that the disciples, along with literally hundreds of thousands of others, have made the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast called Passover. Um, the Jewish calendar mandated that you observe seven different feasts, in that 12-month period, two of them actually required you to, uh, to journey to Jerusalem, along with, like I said, hundreds of thousands of others of, so, uh, uh, of sojourners coming to, the, coming to the city. And so when we enter John 13, we have a bunch of people, many, many people that have made their way to Jerusalem. But in the midst of this celebration of Passover, there are required events that need to take place. One is the Passover meal, but just put everything together. You've got the city of Jerusalem. You've got hundreds of thousands of sojourners coming, inundating the city with the requirement to take part in a Passover meal. It put great pressure on the city. 100,000 people, 500,000 people, a million people showed up to Vancouver. It'd be tough to house them all if they all came at the same time. Well, that's the kind of pressure on the city of Jerusalem. And so it was mandated to those who lived in the city who had buildings in the city, homes in the city, or whatever in the city, you had to free up space in your house so you could partake with your friends and family of a Passover meal. And so what we see with Jesus and the disciples is that they were able to secure an upper room in somebody's house. He's an unnamed supporter. And that's what we drop into in John chapter 13. It was during this time in the upper room that Jesus breaks from the traditional observations of the evening and does something that is jaw-dropping, absolutely jaw-dropping, but all too often misinterpreted and misapplied as well. So let's take a look at it. Just read verse 1 with me. It sets the stage. We'll take some time and unpack it, and then we'll start busting through the rest of the text. Verse 1, now, before the feasts of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour, I'll come back to that phrase, his hour, in a moment. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now I said that this is a jaw-dropping event, what will take place, what we're going to look at today, but I also said it's misapplied, it's misinterpreted oftentimes as well. That's why I want to spend some time in verse 1, because verse 1 gives us the first hint to helping us understand how to interpret this portion of Scripture. I say that based on that phrase that ends verse 1. Take a look at it again, if you don't mind, where it says, He loved them to the end. You see that? He loved them to the end. That's written here in our text that we use to teach out of the ESV translation. If you use an NIV translation, very common and good translation, it translates that phrase, he showed them the full extent of his love. I like that. Because that phrase, to the end, refers not only to time, but to extent. It refers to degrees, So what we have here is this particular event that we're going to walk into shows to the fullest degree the extent of Jesus' love. But that's a problem. And why is it a problem? It's a problem because of that. It's a problem because of the cross. Because I don't think anyone would try to argue for the fact that foot washing is the greatest demonstration of the love of Jesus, especially in the shadow of the cross. I mean, Jesus himself in John chapter 15, verse 13 states, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that particular verse is a verse or a statement given in the same upper room. There's a long discourse that John records. This is a part of that. So what do we do with that then? Well, it's actually helpful. Verse 1 is helpful for us in coming to a place where we understand what to make and how to determine and apply and interpret this particular event. And what we do here in the beauty of this verse is that it helps us by cautioning, cautioning us against reading, the reading of Jesus' foot washing apart from the cross. In other words, Jesus' foot washing and the crucifixion are two events that make up one whole. They are two sides of the same coin, so to speak. The foot washing that is about to take place points ahead and finds its realization in the cleansing that is the result of Jesus' imminent death on the cross. In other words, Westside, please get this as we enter this text. You cannot read John 13 apart from the cross. The shadow of the cross, like I said, needs needs to cast its shadow on it. And that's a mouthful. So let me help you with this by looking at three things within the remaining verses that I think this foot washing is to be seen as. So three things, if you like taking notes, three things that the foot washing needs to be seen as. I'll give them to you on the front and then I'll double back and hit them one by one. The three that we'll look at today is Jesus' foot washing is to be seen seen as, number one, a display, number two, as a symbol, and then number three, an, an example. So let's look at them one by one. First, Jesus' foot washing is to be seen as a display. A display of what, though? Well, a display of his love. The foot washing of Jesus is to be seen as a display of his love, The first aspect of Jesus' love we see is one we've already touched upon, and that is his love is resolute, steadfast. It will be accomplished. It's it's that type of love. Uh, Why do I say that? Well, I say that because the full extent or degree that we talked about coming out of verse 1, as I mentioned, is contingent upon the finished work of the cross, So verse 1, as I said, makes no sense without the certainty of the cross. To put it a different way, and I'm working hard to make sure we get this because I don't want you to misunderstand John chapter 13, these 17 verses, is John chapter 13 verse 1 can't say that the foot washing of Jesus shows the full extent of his love for us if it wasn't a certainty that he was going to the cross. But why does John write here in verse 1 that he is showing it before the event took place, the cross took place? Why is he saying this is showing it here? Because the cross was certain. It was certain. In fact, in verse 1, if you look and check out verse 1 one more time, it says there that Jesus knew his hour had come. See that word, his hour, that phrase, his hour? What is this hour a reference to? Well, it's not a 60-minute period of time. What this term hour is a reference to is it speaking of the cross. That event, that whole event, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, that hour had come. And therefore, verse 1 can tell us that this act of foot washing showed the full extent of Jesus' love because the cross and the love it displayed was absolutely certain. His love would take him to the cross. This tender act in John chapter 13 rests assuredly on the violence to come. So that sets the stage in terms of what we see come next. So let's pick it up and read verses two to five. You like pink on me? Looking good in pink. I'm looking good. That's good, man. Verse two, let's pick it up. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped Around him. Foot washing, and I think most of us know this, in a first century dry, arid, dusty climate where the most common form of travel was, was by foot was both common and necessary. Oftentimes, cleaning your feet was done personally. If you came home after a day spent walking around in the marketplace or wherever, you would come home and you would clean your own feet. But there were those occasions where you entered the house by invitation, perhaps to a wealthier person's house, and it was the job of a hired hand to wash your feet. Peer-to-peer washing wasn't practiced, never. And never did the owner of the house or a host of a particular occasion clean the feet of his invited guests it would have been seen as beneath them debasing but here in the starkest of contrasts Jesus rose and begins washing his disciples feet this leads to a second aspect that this foot washing displays of Jesus love and that is Jesus love is self-debasing As I said, owners, or in this case, a host, would never wash the feet of his guests, but Jesus did. But here's the thing, and I really want us to see this, especially in light of verse 3. Verse 3 ratchets up this self-debasing act of Jesus. Just look at verse 3 one more time, because in it, we see some things that Jesus knows. He knows that he is going back to God. He knows that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knows that he comes from God. In other words, Jesus had all, was all, had absolute power and status, and he knew all. And if he so chose, he could have displayed this power and authority any way he wanted. Don't miss that. In fact, you get tastes, Right? If you spend some time studying the journey of Jesus to the cross, you get glimpses of of his power. Where He just kind of gives you glimpses, whether it was the healing of the ear that was cut off by Peter or a great one, just hang a right, go to John 18. Let me show you another. It doesn't get referred to as much as others, but I think it's wonderful. But in John 18, let's pick it up in verse 4. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it for you. It says in verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, This is unreal. Our Jesus, just pursuing the cross, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Ego a me. He literally said, I am. But notice what takes place Judas, who was betrayed with him, was standing with him when Jesus said to them, Ego a me they drew back and they fell to the ground not in an act of worship but succumbing to the power of a glimpse of the divinity and power of Jesus Jesus says in the book of Matthew Matthew chapter Matthew chapter 26 that he could call down legions of angels So I just want to taste, I want us to taste this. He knew all, he had all, he was all, he had power, he had assurance, he had status, but instead of displaying any of that power and display it rightfully, instead he dons the uniform of a common slave. He removes his outer garments, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins washing his disciples' feet. Tellingly, with this particular event as an exception, there is no recorded instance in all of Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. This is the only recording we have. In Luke's account of the upper room, this is what Jesus says. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Make no mistake, Jesus isn't saying to his disciples that he is not greater than they are, but that he is laying aside his greatness and in an act of great self debasement, displaying the extent of his love. Here's a third aspect of Jesus' love displayed in his foot washing, and that is his love is astonishing. It's astonishing. The reason why I say that is because Judas is still at the table. And he will have his feet washed by Jesus. Judas is drinking good wine. He's eating some roasted lamb. He's probably thinking about what he's going to do with the money that he's going to get for turning Jesus over. And make no mistake, Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray betray him. If you look at verse 11 in our text, we read there that Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. We are reminded in verse 2 as well what's going on in Judas's life when it says that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus, in an astonishing demonstration of his love for the whole world, washes his feet. This astonishing love of Jesus leads D.A. Carson to write that Jesus' act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning. So we see this astonishing display of love from Jesus to Judas, to all of us. But do you know what this also does, this foot washing of Judas, what it does for us today, what it tells us and reminds us of today? Uh, an aspect that I think we need to get today, and that is there is no right, there is no custom, there is no practice that we could give ourselves to, even a practice or a custom or a right led by the Son of God Himself that removes the necessity of us being cleaned by Jesus first. Ultimately, cleaned by Jesus. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So this reminds us that no ceremony, no custom, even when led by Jesus himself, ensures spiritual cleansing. For us, we need to make sure that we don't think that participation in baptism or communion or giving a lot of money or service or family heritage or consistent church attendance saves us. None of it saves us. They may be helpful and important things for a number of different reasons, but they don't save us. When we baptize in a couple of weeks down at the Pacific Ocean right off Stanley Park, that's not a demonstration or an act or a custom to be done so that we are saved. It's an act or a custom or a symbol or a display that we already have been. This reminds us of that. So if we are to see the act of Jesus foot washing, number one as a display to specific specifically a display of Jesus' love. A second thing that we are to see it as is as a symbol. Specifically a symbol of Jesus' ultimate and saving cleansing. A transition happens in verse 6. Jesus has this interaction with Peter. Let's read verse 6 together. Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? The way... Peter's response reads in the Greek is, you wash my feet? What was Peter's issue? Messiahs don't wash feet. Peers don't even wash the feet of peers, and Jesus was no peer and wasn't considered a peer by the disciples. They revered, they loved Jesus. They esteemed Jesus. They saw Jesus as Messiah. Messiahs don't wash feet. It would have been seen as okay and acceptable for the disciples to wash Jesus' feet, but not this way around. But on one hand, you could see Peter's resistance as understandable, couldn't you? On one hand... I mean, if they revere in in their customs and rites and the cultural mores of this particular time, Jesus, the Messiah, washing their feet, you can sort of look at this and go, well, I understand why Peter is resisting Jesus washing his feet. But on the other, it's simply another example of the failure common with the disciples to not comprehend who Jesus was and what he was all about. But what Peter is doing here is something we do today. Anytime we attempt to compliment Jesus without recognizing him in his totality and wholeness. Verse 7 solidifies the fact, as you look back at your text, it solidifies the fact that this foot washing is to be seen more than just as a standalone act. Look at verse 7. It's a really important verse in the midst of this particular event. Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand You don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterward you will. Afterward of what? After what? The cross. And this is why, again, coupled with verse 1, we are to look at this particular event, this foot-washing event in light of the cross. After my death and resurrection, you will understand this. After that, you will understand that I have to wash you now and why I did you will understand that humbling myself even to death is paramount for your cleansing this foot washing points ahead to something that you will understand after it's also a challenge of faith for peter isn't it which i think is so practical for us today see peter doesn't want, want to watch want to peter doesn't want jesus to wash his feet but jesus responds by saying even though you don't understand it, I need to do it, you need to believe that you will understand it later. So what does Jesus want Peter to do? Well, he wants Peter to submit to the washing in faith. And I wonder if Jesus doesn't have the same kind of call on you today as well. Perhaps you don't fully understand yet, but you need to step out in faith and receive the cleansing of Jesus. You see, it's not a blind faith call here from Jesus to Peter. It's a call to Peter by Jesus to say, look, in light of who I am and what you know of me now, do you know enough of me now? Do you trust me enough now to proceed in this particular event in faith knowing that it will make sense down the line? That's the same call that Jesus has for us. At times, do you know enough of me now to proceed by faith, in faith, and receive something that I'm calling you towards or calling you from? Will you proceed by faith and trust that things will be revealed to you down the line? Another question that comes out of this Do you revere Jesus yet all the while continue to reject his cleansing? That's common today as well. People speak well of Jesus. They respect Jesus. They revere Jesus, but they continue to reject his ultimate cleansing. Is that you? You wash my feet? However, in spite of Jesus' challenge, Peter continues to demonstrate his incomprehension and resistance, therefore. And in the beginning of verse 8, he says, you shall never wash my feet. What was Peter's ongoing issue here in verse 8? While he was still thinking on a social and a cultural level. Many reject. Jesus cleaning today stunted and hindered because of social and cultural mores as well. But take a look at the response of Jesus at the end of verse 8 when he says here, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. You have no relationship with me. Peter, I need to wash you. Now, if this was simply and only about foot washing, it wouldn't make sense. It would make no sense at all. But if we understand the symbolism of this act, then this statement needs to be read as mandatory. It's a command. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Therefore, this is true for all then as it is true for all today. Jesus needs to wash us. He needs to wash us. For you and me to be clean and share or belong to Jesus, we must receive the humiliating act of Jesus' death on our behalf. We need to receive that. We need that ultimate washing by Jesus. And I also need you to see today in 2014 in this city is, notice the one who is doing the cleaning here. Who is the one that is cleaning? It's Jesus. Who is the only one who can clean? Jesus. What do we need to do? Stop trying to clean ourselves. Jesus is the only one that offers ultimate cleaning so that we can come into a place of relationship with him. We can't clean ourselves. That's the point of this. Now, as Peter is apt to do, and this is why we love Peter, he goes from, A, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet, to, look at verse 9, he's wonderful. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I don't know if you talk like that, probably not. What if Peter has like a big squeaky voice? Doesn't that bum you out? You're kind of like, oh, that's a bummer. That's a bummer. Jesus said to him, not that, by the way, squeaky voices if you have one. Love you guys. Welcome here. Good to see you. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And again, verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said not all of you are clean. Verse 10 is really confusing. Verse 10 is the most confusing verse in our text today. What does he mean? He's talking about bathing, cleaning. You're already clean, but I need to clean you a little bit more. What's going on? If you don't receive my cleaning, even though you already are clean, then you'll have no part. Like, what the? Jesus, help me. What are you talking about? Let's take it one by one. Let's neat-nick it, unpack it, and make sure that we get it. What do we do with this verse? Well, some people say Jesus is speaking about baptism. But that doesn't make sense. For although baptism... For although important, baptism doesn't clean us, but serves as a symbol, as I said before, that we've already been cleaned. Some other people say it points to communion. That's a big stretch, so I will give it no time. Others say... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So if you ever come up here and ask me a question, I just walk away. Now you'll know what I think of your question. Although there are no stupid questions, just stupid people. Others say it's a reference of just... Welcome, I'm popping off now, forgive me, I'll slow down. (laughs) Others say it's a reference to the ongoing work of maturity by way of God's involvement in our lives. I think we're getting somewhere with this. Here's what I think Jesus is telling Peter and us in this, especially specifically in verse 10. Number one, he is affirming something that we've already talked about, that Jesus' foot washing is to serve as a symbol of his death and sacrifice, and it's not a topping up or an additional cleansing for it would make verse 7 conflicting. As I said, coming out of verse 7, you cannot separate this act from Jesus' death on the cross. Second, however... Although it is true that those who have been bathed by Jesus are clean, there will doubtless be times where we need to have subsequent sins cleansed away. We've, We've been bathed, but our feet get dirty, so to speak. I think we see this here as well. I'm going to come back to this second one in a moment, okay? And third... As we will see in the last few verses, this foot washing by Jesus is to serve as an example for us to follow. So I think it's all three. But let me go back to that second one. I said there that there's no doubt we have been cleaned if we are in Christ, but as we walk with Jesus, we will need to constantly gaze back on the cross and have our feet clean, so to speak. I want to double back on that because I think many of us need this. I think many of us need this. And I want you to see this about our Jesus. That our Jesus is one who says, look, you're clean, but you need to be cleaned. You need to be cleaned, and I want to clean you. The reason why I say that is because, and please hear me, the reason why I want to say that is because too many of you are believing the lie of our enemy that um, he loves to bombard us with, and that is Jesus is tired of us. That God is somehow tired of us. Oh, that same, that same repentance act again. Now he's tired of you, don't go. Or that you feel like you're too far gone. And the enemy is accusing and it's causing us to step back and not be washed. I want us to see this Jesus here. He said, I'm here to clean you. We aren't to abuse this. Certainly, this is no call or a right for us to just keep on sinning, but it is a reminder that if we do sin, we have one that we can confess to who will clean us. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, I want you to, it's not on the screen, I want you just to taste, hear these words. John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Any of you needing your feet clean today? Amen, brother. Every day. A life with Jesus is a life walked in repentance. Every day. And I want us to see this and get this and receive it as well. This leads to the third and final aspect of what Jesus' foot washing serves as, and that is it's an example, an example to follow. Let me read verses 12 to 16. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly. And when Jesus says truly, truly, birds stop chirping, dogs stop barking, waves stop crashing. Truly, truly. Note this, underline this, tattoo this. Okay, you have my permission, tattoo this. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. In the same way that we can never die the type of death Jesus died in terms of what it accomplished, it still serves as an example to us and for us, but so too with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus poses a question to his disciples at the end of verse 12. Do you see the question there? Do you understand what I have done for you? West side, the same question is posed to us. Do we understand what Jesus has done for us in this act? In verse 15, he actually makes it crystal clear when he says that he has given us an example. An example of what? An example to start putting on foot washing events here at Westside every day. No. That's not the example. Some of you are scared. You think I'm going to start bringing out basins, right? Right now. Some of you didn't get your... Petty Meddy this week, you're freaking out on me, all right? You're, don't worry about it. I'm not going to bring out a basin because that's not the example here, primarily the example of Jesus here. The example is the example of self-abasing and humble service, an example that points others to the cross as well. See, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. One author put it this way, little becomes Jesus' followers more than humility. Christian zeal, divorced from transparent humility, sounds hollow, even pathetic. Let me wrap this up. Over the years, I've been a part of probably five or six foot washing events. I've had my feet washed and I've washed a fair number of feet as well. On Monday Thursday, Monday, Latin, for the Mandate of Jesus that we'll look at next week, um, specifically, but Monday Thursday, right before Good Friday, around the world, ceremonial foot washings take place, based on this, because this is Thursday night. So if ceremonial foot washings take place, I'm not down on them. But they, the takeaway here isn't simply to have foot washings. I believe Jesus command is a call to humility. And selflessness towards our brothers and sisters and not simply the act of foot washing which can easily mask an unbroken and proud heart. It's not the act Jesus is calling us to. It's the attitude behind it. That's why Paul in Philippians 2.5 says, have this attitude in yourselves. Again, just to be clear, which was also in Christ Jesus, just to be clear, I'm not down on the act. But the act without the attitude, the changed heart, means nothing. Means nothing. In addition, my caution, if you participate in foot washings, and again, I'll repeat myself a third time, I'm not down on them, but if you make the foot washing about you, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. Foot washing is about Jesus and his work on the cross. If it's an act that you participate in where your heart just gets a glimpse of the heart of Jesus, wonderful. But don't make it about you. It's about Jesus and his work for us. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we have no excuse not to. As Jesus says, truly, truly, a servant is not greater than his master. And that's who we are, servants of Jesus. And who is Jesus, he is our He's our good master. A, ma- a master who took his clothes off. He got down on his knees and cleaned the feet of Judas, who would betray him, and Peter, who would deny him, and the other 10 who would run. Only hours from this event. That's our Jesus. If you call me Lord and teacher, as he states in verses 13 and 14, what makes you think that you shouldn't live in humility and love toward one another? That's our call. Westside, that's our call. As one author put it, no slave has the right to judge any menial task beneath him after his master has already performed it. Power and status, as we see all around us and probably fight in us, can lead to arrogance and pride. But power and status in God, power and status that we we receive from God in Christ and see modeled in Jesus is ours as well, but it also, like Jesus, frees us up to lay ourselves down. Every good and perfect gift in the heavenlies is ours. We're children of God. We know where we're going. It's that identity that allows us to follow the example of Jesus. We don't have to fight for power and authority and status anymore because we got it. We got it. And don't worry about dying because we've already died in Christ. That's the example of Jesus here. I love the promise of verse 17. I close with it where Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus' foot washing is a display, a symbol, and a model given to us in the final days of Jesus. The question that I want to close with as we go into a time of response is what resonates with you most? The display of his love? The symbol of his death? Or the model to follow? What needs to be realized in you most? what needs to be realized in me most. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We love you. Jesus, my prayer is that when we now go into a time of responding to your love, depicted, shown here that we would respond in ways that that we would respond in ways that bring you much um, worship and and adoration, that we would respond in ways that would demonstrate a Christ-like changing in us, because the, the challenge of this text is a challenge that is so contrary to the world around us, it would not make sense. But by the Spirit working in us, everything in our flesh wants to resist this. Everything in, our, everything in the culture around us and the things we fight internally in, in regards uh, seek to put us in places of, of power and, and we seek position and we want to be right and we want people to serve us and so I just pray that your spirit would invade us invade this time and this place invade our hearts and our minds that we would repent of of all of those things that run contrary to the life that you call us to live because in that in resting in you and receiving what you have for us that's where true joy and abundant life are found I pray for the people here that have not yet been washed by you that have not yet received the ultimate cleansing offered to them by and through your work on the cross. I pray that today they would say yes to you. And I do pray for the others in here that do know you yet perhaps have been duped by the enemy. They haven't guarded their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and so they've been strained from you, walking away from you, thinking that you don't have any love for them and forgiveness for them to be received. I pray they would come back to you today, that as we celebrate um, communion together, that that would be a great journey from their seat to when they take the bread and dip it into the wine or the juices. That would be a great journey of just receiving your grace in ongoing measure. So I pray for those sweet times like that. I just pray for that. God, would you be so gracious as to invade this time? Please, please, for your glory's sake and our strengthening's sake, please do this. In Jesus' great name I pray, amen. Would you rise as we go into a time of response, please? West Side.